It was a small yet effective prayer, a prayer of gratitude, prayer from the heart, a prayer of remembrance, a prayer of thanksgiving. This old man, his name's Ed, he would go out to the pier every single Friday. He had a limp and he'd walk out on, at the edge of the pier. He'd have this bucket of raw shrimp and he'd throw it in the air. And as he'd throw it in the air, the seagulls would just swar, or swarm around him and, and, and grab the shrimp. And he'd simply say, thank you. Throw up another handful. Thank you. Throw up another handful. Thank you. What I love about good stories is they usually have a story behind the story. This is a good story. Go back to World War I. Ed enlisted in the army. In World War I, he wanted to be a pilot and he had a knack for it. He would shoot down 26 enemy aircraft and receive the Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions. He was an adrenaline junkie and a daredevil, so after World War I, he would become a professional race car driver. In fact, the, the professional race car circuit that we have today can trace its roots back to Ed and some of his buddies and the way they raced. As an entrepreneur, he liked to fly airplanes and he also decided to start his own airline. It's called Eastern Airlines and it was a rockin' airlines all the way through the middle of the 20th century. So what about the seagulls? Funny you should ask that. Go to World War II. World War II breaks out. Ed wants to join the military and, and, and fly again. He was overqualified, but the War Department said, nope, you're not going to do that. We need you and your popularity to help us raise money for the war effort. So he said, okay, I'll do the, the public relations game. And he did that. At one point, Franklin Delano Roosevelt reached out to him and said, listen, I need you to send a letter, carry a letter, a message directly from me to General MacArthur in the South Pacific. Rumor had it that it was a scathing letter telling General MacArthur to stay in his military lane and not step into the political game. That's for another story, another time. So he jumped on board a military aircraft with his business partner and eight service members. And somewhere over the South Pacific, over Japanese-controlled waters, his navigational system went out and their plane crashed. For three weeks, they would float in the South Pacific, always fearful of being captured by the Japanese, always fearful of sharks fighting off starvation, fighting off dehydration. After three days of floating, they ran out of food and water. And it was at a given time shortly after that that he's sitting there in this life raft and a seagull landed on his head. So he reached up slowly, he grabbed the seagull, he, he wrung its neck, and they, they broke open the seagull and they're saying, please, let, let's share this with everybody we can eat. He said, no, we're not going to eat it, we're going to use it as bait for fish. And they did. And they caught some fish and some more fish, and then some more fish. And as they caught all this fish, they were able to survive for more than three weeks in the South Pacific. Ed said, this is truly a miracle from God. So every Friday for the rest of his life, he would go to the edge of that pier, and he'd throw that shrimp in the air and just say, thank you, thank you. He said these words. He said, it was clear to me that God had a purpose in keeping me alive. I was saved to serve. What I love about the Eddie Rickenbacker story is that he had this amazing prayer life with God with simple prayers every Friday, thank you. But then he had this horizontal relationship with others. He was known as a very, uh, a very generous man, someone who was a prayerful servant. 
Have you ever considered that God calls on each of us to be that prayerful servant, to have that rock and prayer life, but also to have that outward relationship towards others? Well, such is what we're going to talk about today. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. As Christ followers, our speech and our actions must have an upward and an outward focus. As Christ followers, our speech and actions must have an upward focus and an outward focus, a vertical and horizontal push. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we wrap up this amazing series on this short letter called Colossians. Uh, Today, I'm going to be hanging out in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Five verses that are very, very powerful that hits home this main theme. But before we get started, instead of setting the scene for what's going on, what I want to do is kind of cover the overarching themes of this letter, because we got to understand that as we apply today's teaching, okay? So if we go back to 61 AD, 28 years after Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. Paul writes this letter from a prison. Actually, he's under house arrest. And he writes several letters called the prison epistles. One of them is to the church in Colossae. What he wanted to do was push against these Gnostics, these false teachers who were saying Jesus isn't really God. That because he was born, that meant he had sin in him. He actually has evil in him. So maybe he can be a little G God, but he can't be God. And Paul pushes hard against that. The overarching theme of the letter is that Jesus is God, Jesus is supreme, that he is sufficient for us in all areas of our lives, as our life, our leader, as our, our, our God to be worshipped. So Paul divides this letter up into three areas. The first part is who is Christ, and we hammered that hard for the first several weeks, that Jesus is God, Jesus is supreme. Next, he talks about who we are in Christ, that when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit enters us, and what's beautiful about that is that we're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, that now we're we're adopted into God's family. He is truly our Abba Father, and we are children of God. And then last but not least, he talks about relations. All those different relationships that we have in the past few weeks, we've looked at that. Today, he's going to hammer home a very important aspect of relations, the vertical relationship with God, with a prayer life, and then the horizontal relationship with others, with how we serve, how we speak, and how we act. Okay, with that, let's look at that. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. I'm going to read through it first, and then we're going to pull it apart. Here we go. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Let your conversations, whoops, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this message you've given me today. Thank you for the words from the Apostle Paul. Lord, they're so powerful, and I just pray that you uh, use me and, and help me handle these words well. I pray for everyone here in our auditorium, anyone watching online, wherever they are, no matter at what time that they're watching this, that, Lord, you will prepare their hearts for a powerful word that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so let's pull this apart. Let's start with verse two. Verse two, Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. So circle that word devote. We're gonna geek out and Greek out on that word. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. What's kind of cool about the letter to Colossians, if you look at the letter to Colossians and the letter to the, the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians letter, they both resemble each other really closely. Paul wrote both of them from prison. So he says, devote yourselves to prayer. He starts out with this letter, just like he does in the Ephesians letter talking about prayer. In fact, I believe it's either week two or week three, Pastor Bob spent a considerable amount of time looking at Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 13. It's a powerful, powerful prayer that Paul prays. And our challenge in that second or third week was that we would internalize that prayer. We would make it our own. So if we would make that prayer our own, it goes something like this. Lord, fill us all with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom, and spiritual understanding, so that we walk worthy in you, that we are fully pleasing to you, that we bear fruit in every good work, and we grow in the knowledge of you. God, strengthen us. Strengthen us with all power and might. Help us be the men and women you've called us to be. Let our love abound in knowledge, depth, and insight. That's how he kicks off the letter, so it makes sense that he's going to do a bookend of prayer, and he says, devote. Devote yourselves to prayer. Let's, let's geek out and Greek out on that word devote because it's really important. The Greek word is proskaterio, proskaterio. And what proskaterio means is exactly what Sandy said to Danny in Greece, hopelessly devoted, hopelessly devoted to you. Okay, how many of you are still boohooing about, uh, about Olivia Newton-John dying? I am. I, I've watched Greece a thousand times with my kids. Yeah, <laughs> Australia's sweetheart. So she says, Danny, I'm hopelessly devoted to you. That's what being devoted, it means it comes from the heart. In this context with prayer, it means to persevere and not faint, to actively wait. In this context, you guys know that I like to do, uh, if I would write a Bible and, and push up against Eugene Peterson's The Message, it would call, be called the Kipster International Version. Well, I'll take a stab at it with this verse. And when it comes to being devoted, here's what I would say. At all times, no matter how long it takes to get an answer to your prayers, keep praying. Don't stop. Keep praying till your voice is hoarse and your knees are calloused. Persevere at it because it's the most important connection you have to God through Christ Jesus. Be devoted. Kipster International Version, there you go. Jesus would agree. That's proskaterio. Jesus would agree. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount and, and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the last third of that very short sermon, Jesus starts talking about prayer. He starts talking about how we have a good, good father who just wants to shower us with blessings and how he wants to, us to pray. He says, you know, what kind of good father, if you'd, if you'd ask him for a fish, would give you a snake? So he talks about this thing of being devoted. Look at this, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. Think about what it means to be devoted in prayer. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Amen. You know, 
the thing I love about that is Jesus is not talking about a one and done prayer. When you see that ask, seek, knock, you think it's just one and done. No, if you look at the original language, it's a continuous action. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't give up. Have your, your voice become hoarse and your knees callous because guess what? God's going to answer that prayer, but here's the, the deal. He'll sometimes answer it, yes, and when he does, we're like saying, God is good all the time, yay, praise God. Then we boo-hoo when he says no, because that's hard. There are times when we don't understand why God says no. We simply don't get it. In our minds, he should be answering this prayer a very specific way, but God's under no moral obligation to answer prayers the way we think he should. God has a specific vantage point, and we don't understand when he says no to healing, when he says no to provision. We just don't get it, and we can't on this side of eternity, but he wants us to trust him. That's why so often we're in the waiting room, and he simply says, wait, and that's hard. But the beautiful thing about the waiting room is what happens is, is God takes our will, and as we're in that waiting room, through his Holy Spirit, he aligns our will up with his we don't align God's will with ours. He, he's God, we're not. That's the thing about the waiting room. More on that in just a few minutes. But if right now you're asking and seeking and knocking and you're not getting an answer, be specific with your prayer. Be confident that God hears your prayer. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Be devoted, Paul would say. But then he adds two more things to that. Let's go back to verse 2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Watchful and thankful. Being watchful, in the words of Warren Wiersbe, being watchful means to be spiritually energized, to be on point, to be alert. I've had a prayer request at the foot of Jesus for several months, and I keep praying for this, and God's made it very clear that I'm supposed to wait. And what I've found as I've been in the waiting room is my spiritual antenna are up. And what I'm doing is I see him working in a bunch of different ways. First of all, I see him working on my heart because where I was praying several months ago, my heart's in a different place now in a good way. I'm seeing him move around in a lot of people and things and circumstances. He still says, wait. So that's what being watchful. I'm spiritually energized. I'm, I'm looking for God to work. And then he says, be thankful. Be thankful. Wow, that's gratitude from the, the heart. That's Eddie Rickenbacker every Friday saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. A great verse that really lays this out is Philippians 4, verse 6. Philippians 4, verse 6. Paul writes these words. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, look at this, with thanksgiving. Yep, present your requests to God. I've shared with you guys my struggles with anxiety, my struggles with depression. I'm a hot mess sometimes. And when it comes to anxiety, I've talked here a lot about what anxiety means. It means to, to have a divided mind. That's the literal meaning of it. And what happens, our mind gets divided. We forget the sovereignty of God and we go to the scariness of our circumstances. We tend to, uh, to, to focus on the what if instead of God's sovereignty, that God has our back, that, that God can be trusted and what thankfulness does is that it brings our mind back together. We can say, thank you, God, not for the circumstance, but in the circumstance. 
We don't thank God for the cancer. We don't thank God for uh, the, the difficulty. We thank God for him being in control in that circumstance, that he holds all things together. And yes, we can trust him no matter what. So Paul says, be thankful, be thankful. We gotta be devoted, watchful, and thankful. A man who truly understood this was a guy named George Mueller. George Mueller was a pastor back in the 1800s in, the, in England. Uh, he was known to start the whole orphanage movement in England. It was said that during his lifetime, more than 120,000 orphans received, uh, received care under his watch. So he's, he's a guy who was devoted, watchful, and thankful. A story was told when he was running one of these orphanages. They had about 300 kids in this orphanage. And he's, he's in his, his study one morning. He's doing his quiet time. Gets a knock on the door. And it's the, uh, the kitchen worker. And he says, listen, pastor, we've got a problem. We got 300 kids here and we've got no food. He says, okay, uh, get the kids into the dining hall. I want to talk to them. So he goes out into the dining hall. He says, listen, children, I want you to understand something. You cannot be late for school today, and we have a problem. The problem is we have no food. And all the kids are boohooing. They're like, no, no, this is horrible. He says, stop, we're going to praise God. What? Yeah, we're going to praise God because he's going to do something. I don't know what it's going to be, but he's going to do something. And we're going to trust in him. So he starts praising God and thanking God for all of the provisions up to that time, that they're not going to starve that day, but that God is going to show up. And as he's praying, he gets a knock on the door. They open the door, and it's the baker down the street. He said, God stirred on my heart late last night, early this morning, that I needed to bake a bunch of bread for you. So I made bread and pastries for all y'all. I got about 300. And everyone's like, yay, this is awesome. Well, it's the 1800s, so they said, this doth beeth awesome. And so... They're all excited, so they start praising God again. And as they're praising God again with all the these and thous, knock, knock, knock on the door. And they open the door. They look outside. Again, it's the 1800s, so they have this huge, there's this huge cart being pulled by several horses. It's a milk truck. And the milk truck has broken down. And the milkman says, listen, I got a problem. My milk truck broke down. I'm not going to make any deliveries. It's yours for free because it's going to be spoiled. He's like, how much do you have? Well, enough for, I don't know, 300 people. Again, this doth be awesometh. Everybody's screaming and cheering. What's my point? My point is this. Mueller could have had a divine freak out session. He could have simply said, his mind could have been divided, but it wasn't. He ended up praising God in the midst of a very difficult circumstance. He praised God not for the circumstance, but in the circumstance. Many of you right now are going through very, very difficult times. You've had horrific news given to you. You're struggling physically, emotionally, maybe even spiritually. I just want to encourage you, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Be proskaterio, be devoted to prayer. But maybe... Just maybe today, God may be whispering in your ear saying, hey, don't forget a little bit of gratitude in there. Maybe thank me in this circumstance because I'm up to doing some work here. Okay, so back to Paul. Let's go to, to verse three because now he's gonna continue with this upward focus but with an outward twist. Okay, verse three. He says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. Underline that. That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. I find it bizarre that St. Pablo here doesn't come out and say, get me out of this place. I want the whole church praying for me. I want an Acts 
You know, in the book of Acts, when, when everybody's praying for Peter and the angel of the Lord shows up and they bust him out of jail, it's an incredible jailbreak story. He doesn't pray that. I would. I'd be saying, I want a hot shower. I want a cup of coffee. I want to hang out with my wife and kids. I'm tired of these one eyebrow, no neck thugs named Roman guards being in my business as I do my business. Get me out of here. Not Paul. Remember also in the book of Acts, Jesus would tell Paul that he was going to go to Rome and he was going to proclaim the message. So Paul's all about praying in God's will. He's not saying, give me the easy way out. He's like, no, I'm here in a tough situation. I want to be in your will. Help me be in your will. Folks, so many times we tend to try to bend God's will. We, we, we tend to try to take hold of God's reluctance instead of his willingness. Those are words from Warren Wiersbe. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. Back when we were in South Korea, it was our second assignment, 2006. Our, our family moved overseas yet again, and we were in an amazing military chapel, a chapel program, a, a church uh, for, for service members. And our youth pastor there was a great guy, his wife, Cynthia, wonderful, wonderful lady. She got colon cancer. She was young. She should not have gotten that, but she did. And it wrecked her body. Oh my gosh, she went through all the, the chemotherapy, all of the stuff, the surgeries, and they thought they got it all. So we're all praising God, things are good. And not, it's just a handful of weeks later, we get the report that the cancer's back and it's ugly. So one of the prayer warriors in the church sends an email out to all of us and says, hey, we're gonna do a, a prayer vigil for Cindy. We want everybody to be there, but there's a caveat. You can come only if you're claiming healing for her. You can't come if you're going to be weak and just say, your will be done. You're not welcome. I mean, seriously, that's what it said. I was like, okay, I got a problem with that. Because last time I checked, our Lord and Savior Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let me see. He's sweating blood. He's under so much angst. And he says, God, take, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. I don't want to do this. This is going to stink. But nonetheless, not my will, but your will. Unfortunately, unfortunately uh, Cynthia died a few weeks later. But the reason why I bring up that story is this. So many of us try to bend God's will. When God says yes, we rejoice. When he says no, if he has clearly said no, and it's not no and wait, but it's, it's no, we got to move on. We shouldn't be there trying to resurrect a dead prayer. God has said, no, we say, okay, God, I don't get it. I may not like this, but show me how I can reflect you in this very, very difficult circumstance. Lord, show me your will in this. Right, so let's go back to verse three. And pray for us too that God may open the door for our message. Real quick side note, Paul was able to proclaim to Caesar's household the message of Jesus. He says, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Okay, the mystery of Christ. Just to review, uh, Pastor Bob, uh, a handful of weeks ago, spoke deeply into what this mystery of Christ is. The mystery of Christ is that when we receive the Holy Spirit, Christ is in us, and now we're in Christ. Our spirits are, are linked to the Holy Spirit, right. that, that we are God's chosen. And what's beautiful about this is that the mystery of Christ is that God came at a specific time to save his people. 
His people, not only the Jewish people, but also the non-Jewish people known as Gentiles. That's a mystery of Christ. It's the great rescue that started back before the, the, the Garden of Eden, but when Adam biffs it in the Garden of Eden, and it's going to be all made correct in Revelation 22 when Jesus Christ returns and everything is set right. It's amazing. It's the mystery of Christ. So Paul says, listen, I want to I be able to proclaim this gospel. I, I want to be able to pro- proclaim the mystery of Christ. Let's keep on going. Verse 4. He says, pray that I may proclaim it, the gospel, clearly as I should. Clearly as I should. Clarity. Paul's a man of a whole lot of words. I, I love Peter, the disciple Peter, because he just he nails it for me at least. He says some of Paul's letters can be difficult to read. Yeah, you think? Pauline theology can be really difficult. It can, but Paul was always very clear, very clear. And he wanted to be clear about the gospel message. I think too often in the Big C Church, but here at Cornwall Church too, we've got to be careful to, that we don't create obstacles because we can make things more difficult than they really are. Let's take baptisms, for example. There are many churches out there who require you to go through multiple classes in order to be baptized. You do multiple classes. On top of doing multiple classes, you have to write a three to five page paper about your conversion experience, and then you get to meet with a pastor to see if you're worthy of, of, of being baptized. I don't know if any of you have had that happen. It's pretty crazy. So here at Cornwall Church, we're like, no, we're removing an obstacle. We're going to make it easy to be baptized. You want to be baptized? Have you received Jesus as your Savior, Savior and Lord? Yes. Okay. Do you promise to follow him or do your best to follow him the rest of your life? Absolutely. Okay. Let's go get wet. We're excited because next Sunday, a week from today at the 11 o'clock service at Meridian High School, we're doing baptisms. Jesus commands us to be baptized. So no guilt or shame here. You know, it's just Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> Kidding. Send Bob the email. If you want to be baptized, in the chat, there's a link. Click on the link. See us afterwards, and and we'll get you signed up. Get baptized. But that's just one way that we can make it difficult. In the Big C Church, we can make it difficult with big church words, you know? Forbearance, justification, predestination, substitutionary atonement, sanctification. Great words to understand for theology, but sometimes they can muddy the waters with clarity. So what I want to do is I want to give you nine words that I've given you probably 1,100 times in this auditorium. Nine words, nine words to share the gospel, to, to, to simply summarize the gospel. Here we go. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. It's so simple. A child in the Amazon can understand it, yet so complex that billions of words have been written about that concept. Bad things, our sin, our sin that separates us from a holy God. We can't approach a holy God with with the sin in our lives. We're just born with it. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves right. Made good through Jesus who steps down from his throne. He goes to the cross. He's crushed for our sins, past, present, and yes, future. And the beautiful thing is, we receive Jesus. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our last mistake. He doesn't see our jacked upness. He looks at us and he sees the beauty of his son, Jesus. Bad things made good through Jesus. Why? For God so loved the world. He loves us. He loves us. He loves you. Don't let anybody tell you he doesn't. He loves 
you. It's clarity. Paul wanted to explain the gospel with clarity and he did it so well. But we gotta understand that our actions help us have that right to be heard. So what Paul's gonna do now in these five verses, now he's gonna do a hard shift and that hard shift is gonna be about actions and words. Here we go, verse five. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Outsiders are non-Christians. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. I want to talk a little bit about hypocrisy. As a pastor and as a Christ follower, probably the biggest criticism I get of we Christians of the church, especially leaders in the church, is we're all a bunch of hypocrites. And whenever I have someone talk to me about that, I say, well, you know, I'd push it. I'd agree there's a lot of hypocrisy that we have in our lives. But I'd say it's not only Christ followers, I think it's all of us because we live in a fallen world. So what is hypocrisy? Let's talk about hypocrisy because we need to be wise in the way we act towards others. If we're hypocritical in the way we act, that could cause problems. Hypocrisy is pretending to be something you're not while looking down on someone else. It's pretending to be something you're not. It's believing in something, then acting in a manner contrary to what you believe. And then you've got this self-righteousness, this smugness that just stinks. The the Greek word for hypocrite is hypocrites, and what it was, that was an actor. Literally, it means actor. Actually, literally, it means someone who wears a mask. In Paul's time, actors were called hypocrites, and now it's taken a a negative twist. It, It means to be an imposter, a pretender, and hypocrisy is a very, very dangerous thing. Let me give you two examples, one of what it's not and one of what it is, okay? Here's an example of what hypocrisy is not. Uh, you've got, there's a dad and he struggles with pornography. He's addicted to pornography. And so it's taken over his life. He realizes he has a problem. So he confesses it to God, confesses it to a couple men in his life. And then he has the courage to go to his wife and he confesses it to her. And he says, I need counseling. I need to get into counseling. I, I, I want freedom in this and I, I, I want help in our marriage. And so she's like, absolutely, let's do this. He goes into counseling, he makes it through counseling, and and things go well, and then he relapses. Well, then he's got his accountability, and he's just fighting that good fight. He's in the fight, and he's struggling. And one day, he comes home, and he sees his teenage son looking at porn. And he says to his son, listen, son, please, I don't want you doing this. First of all, it's a sin, but secondly, you've seen what it's done in my life. You saw what it almost did to your mom in my marriage. And I just want you to understand, I love you. I want to walk with you through this because this rewires your brain. This has you look at people differently and you don't want that in your life. Let me walk with you. That's not hypocrisy. That's a godly man walking in the struggle, doing his best, not being a hypocrite. Here's here's a hypocrite though. Dad struggles with porn and it's his own little secret. It's in his heart. It's that dark place. It's that place in his heart where he's not going to share that with anybody. And he comes home one day and he catches his son looking at it, looking at porn. So he says, what are you doing? This is a sin. I can't believe you're doing this. Give me your phone. Give me the laptop. You're grounded for two weeks. That's hypocrisy. Dad's not practicing what he's preaching. Jesus 
talks a lot about hypocrisy. In fact, the Bible calls hypocrisy a sin. If you go to Matthew 23, Jesus does this incredible, this incredible speech where he just smacks down on and throws down with the Pharisees, the religious elite of the time. And he's talking to them about their hypocrisy. Let's look at one verse, verse 25. Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you posers, pretenders, mask wearers, imposters. For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, don't miss this, the cup and dish, they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. The Pharisees were not practicing what they preached. The Pharisees looked great on the outside, but inside they were a hot mess. They had a love of a lot of things. One of them was money, and they would look down on people who were stingy with their money, but the Pharisees were known to be very stingy with theirs. One of my favorite comedians is Robin Williams. He committed suicide. I think it was eight years ago last week. And I remember watching an interview uh, with Robin Williams a few years ago, and it was so good. Uh, he, he said, he, he was talking about what, what motivated him as an actor and a comedian, and his answer was simply anger. And everybody was like, what? And so the interviewer pushed hard and said, okay, what do you mean? He said, this is what I mean. I'm outraged by cruel absurdities. The hypocrisy that exists everywhere, even within yourself where it's hardest to see. Cruel absurdities. That's what hypocrisy is when we don't practice what we preach. I struggle here. Man, I'm not calling, I'm not throwing stones here. Every time I preach, God calls me on the carpet with practicing what I preach. God calls on us to walk with integrity to practice what we preach. Our thoughts and words need to add up. I think all of us have a little bit of us, some of us more so than others, to where we fight that poser syndrome. We're afraid of being found out. Paul would talk to Titus, one of his young protege pastors. He's doing the hard work on this island in the Mediterranean that's simply beautiful called Crete, tough work. And Paul talks to Titus, Titus 1 verse 16. He's talking about this whole idea of hypocrisy. He says, they, Christ followers, profess to know God, but look at this, in works they deny him, being abominable, ouch, disobedient, ouch, and disqualified, ouch, 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 for every good work. He's saying our actions count. So he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Be wise in the way you act. Okay, let's go back to verse five. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders, non-Christians, making the most of every opportunity. One of my favorite pastors is a guy named Chuck Swindoll. Dr. Swindoll's had a huge impact on me as a pastor. And and I remember uh, reading, years ago, he wrote something about hypocrisy. And he said these words. He says, our works and our words can either draw a watching world closer to God or drive them further away. That's why Paul's saying, be wise in the way you act. That's why Robin Wilson calls it a cruel absurdity. St. Francis of Assisi is credited with this famous quote, preach the gospel when necessary, use words. And that's beautiful, that's awesome, I agree. But I found that to be a crutch, at least in my life. Okay, I can, I can do all those actions, but at some point I have to use those words. Bad things made good through Jesus, who loves us. Let's go to verse 6. Because now he's going to help us with those words. 
He says in verse 6 this. He says, let your conversation, so it's more than our actions, let your conversation be two things, full of grace, seasoned with salt. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. So that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul's talking here about both our manner of our speech and our content of our speech. So he says, make it full of grace. A handful of of weeks ago, I I preached a sermon and I talked about being kind versus being nice. Being kind is what it's about when it comes to being full of grace. It, It doesn't mean that you're brutally honest. Being brutally honest is simply being brutal. It's having the right to be heard and speaking lovingly those tough truths. Because we all have blind spots. We all have those shadow selves that we need godly men and women to speak into. We need that vibrant prayer life in which God speaks into our hearts to to show us those blind spots. Scripture that just screams at us. Scripture of imperfect people to help us in those areas. So we got to be kind, not nice. Nice is flattery, speaking only love, not willing to say those tough things couched in love. So he says, have your speech be full of grace. And then he says, have it be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Well, in Paul's time, most of us know that they use salt as a preservative. That's not what he's talking about here. Salt, as we know, can enhance the flavor of something. And so he's talking about have your conversations enhance the flavor of a relationship. So Paul says, be devoted to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. Consider the way you act. Watch your speech. Have that that rocking upward focus, that prayer life that's great, but also serve others well and love well. With that, I want to land the plane for this series. And I want to give you a challenge. It's a challenge that we have to remember no matter what. And it's this, as Christ followers, as a prayerful servant, never forget that Jesus is God, Jesus is supreme. That Christ is sufficient in our lives. Because folks, right now, I just look at history. I'm kind of a history buff and a politics buff. It's not only the United States, it's around the world. We are in difficult times Stone me if it doesn't happen as as a false prophet, but I think it's going to get worse. I hope I'm wrong. Things are difficult for many of you right now. I just spoke with a gentleman who lost his wife of multiple decades. It's very, very difficult for so many of you right now. All of us are going to go through difficult times, and we have to remember that Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. That Christ is sufficient for our lives, and why is that? He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He's our creator, sustainer, the living image of God. He's not from the Holy of Holies. He's from, he's from the Holy of Holies and not from the dust and the ground. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme. But wait, there's more. He's our advocate, the author and perfecter of our faith, our chief cornerstone, our deliverer, the good shepherd. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme, but wait, there's more. He's the head of the church, the great I am, Emmanuel, God with us, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. He is the risen Lord, the great Messiah, the mighty one, the rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Come on, church, Jesus is God, Jesus is what? Jesus is supreme, but wait, there's more. He's the son of man, son of God, son of the most high. 
the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is God. Jesus is what? Help, it, help me out. Jesus is supreme, but wait, there's, there's more. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Lord of lords. Jesus is God. Jesus is supreme, and he's got your back. He's sufficient. In all areas, so many of you are struggling right now. I see your faces, I know your stories, and you're struggling. Maybe today. Today's that day you take that knee. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, but you say, I trust you. Jesus I trust you, you are God, you are supreme, you are sufficient for my life. That's the point of this amazing letter. Don't lose that point. Hang on to him, hang on to Christ because he is sufficient.